Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap, where we're bridging the gap between where the industry is today and where it's going by talking with some of the industry's best. And today, one of the best thought leaders in our industry, someone that I admire, that I look to for thought leadership in the space, Alan Moore, CEO and co-founder of XYPN and the CEO of Advice Pay. And our conversation is everything about entrepreneurship, about growing in the wealth management business, about finding an opportunity and then seeing that that opportunity is actually bigger than ever before. We talk about Peloton. We talk about Tonal. We talk about what's next for financial planning because XYPN has been on the forefront of it. And Alan is one of the brightest minds in our space. And it was an honor to have him on this show. So we're going to head over to the content now because you want to hear more from Alan Moore. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Alan Moore, thanks so much for joining us on Bridging the Gap. How's everything going out in uh, Bozeman, Montana? Going great, man. Thank you so much for the uh, invitation to be on the show. Yeah, well, uh, I know how busy you are running multiple companies, so I just appreciate the time. How's everything been going on your side? How's business been? How's how's life? How's the family? How are you? You know, it's a weird time. Obviously, we've all struggled and, and had to adapt with COVID and now with Delta variant ramping up and, and just not really sure where things are are headed. And, you know, we're thinking about conferences and and, and just all of that. But overall, I, I can't complain. It's been great. The um, you know, the the industry continues to sort of march the direction that we have been in, which is great, and just continuing to try to serve our members the best we can. And just got a great team here. And I've got an awesome supportive wife and supportive family and great kids. So I really just I cannot complain. Well, I love it. And I know that some of your roots are, are born back here by us with the, the University of Georgia, but then you kind of you, you went off to the mountains of the West, which I can't fight with, but we, we do miss you back here. You know, and I today I, I really wanted to dive into kind of that journey, right? That you've been on from you know, from the beginning to where you are today, because it's just an amazing path that I think we can all learn from. And then get into some of the, you know, your thoughts on where the industry is going. Like you said, y'all are in the forefront of a lot of stuff where the industry is, is caught up to. And I want to see where we're, where we're going from your perspective. So, you know, why don't we just start with your background, right? What led you to this industry? How'd you get to where you are as being CEO of XYPN and Advice Pay? Share with us that. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's spend the next four hours talking about the journey right now. Um, <laughs> you know, born in the South, Alabama, Georgia, sort of bounced around a little bit. I, I sort of felt like I was destined to become an entrepreneur because I was homeschooled my entire life from second grade all the way through 12th. You know, and, and part of the reason that it ended up being successful is that later in life, uh, later, more recently in life, I have been diagnosed ADHD and just recognize the the gift my parents gave me by allowing me to customize schooling a little bit. And there there were challenges with that because I never really learned to appreciate like teachers, authority, employers, bosses. But also, you know, I, I do think it allowed me to sort of embrace a little bit more around, you know, creative thinking and problem solving and such. And so my first really experience with real school was the University of Georgia. And I really struggled. I was not a great student because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I, I tried pharmacy at school or pre-pharmacy that did not go well. Uh, chemistry is really hard. So anybody who has that background, I applaud you. So I went looking for a degree and, and I had two requirements. I, I needed one that did not require life science because I was convinced I wasn't going to be able to pass any of them. And two, I really did not want to take a foreign language in college because I had done it in high school and just did not enjoy it. And, you know, of course, it's 
probably totally different, but th- this is what the 18, 19 year old Alan thinks about. Uh, and there were eight majors. And so I picked one, consumer economics. I had no idea what that meant. But when I got into it, I ended up taking this course in personal financial planning. And I was like, hey, this is cool. Like I'll learn how to manage my own money. I'd read some, a Dave Ramsey book when I was in high school and that sort of thing. And, and it ended up being the intro to the CFP coursework. And so it was way harder than I was expecting, but I totally fell in love with it. And so it was just so lucky because it was only the second year that program even existed at UGA. And and so, you know, I went from being a very mediocre student to, I think I got a 4.0 my, my junior, senior year, and then ended up staying for grad school because I graduated uh, with a degree in financial planning in 2009. Not the best time to, to get a job <laughs> and and just launched into the industry from there. So I, I made a pass through South Dakota, worked for a, a great mentor and friend, Rick Kaler, and, and learned just a ton about what I'll call real financial planning. And he really set me on the course that I'm on today of really promoting, again, what we call real financial planning. It's not about investments. It's not about insurance. It's about sort of holistic financial planning. Ended up moving to another firm in Wisconsin, and I was there six months when I got fired. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't say it was the first time I'd been fired. It, it was the last so far. But, you know, it, it sort of put me in this position where I was like, you know, I'm 25 years old and I'm thinking, well, I've got the CFP, I've got a master's degree, I've got experience. Like, you know, what are my two options? Option A, I go and launch my own firm and maybe like, what if that works and how cool would that be? And if it doesn't work, then I'll just go get a job at an RIA. Like there's plenty of jobs out there and, you know, felt like my fallback plan failure wasn't so bad, right? It, it wasn't like I was going to be bankrupt and and homeless, like it wouldn't be too bad. And so ultimately launched my own firm back in 2012. And again, sort of another step in the process towards where I ended up today. I love that. And just out of curiosity, you were just talking about you went from Georgia to South Dakota to Wisconsin to start your career and now over to Bozeman, country traveler. How do you just bounce around that way? Are you just, you just wanted to go and explore or was it you got connections? How did you get around? Because when I talk to people, it's like they stay in their one little area sure. and they just bounce around to some firms in that area and that's it. But you went all around. Yeah, I mean, some of it is probably family dynamics that my my family sort of spread out. I've got got family in a couple of different states, and and we just moved a lot when I was a kid. Just my dad was sort of finding his place from a career perspective, and so we sort of bounced around. So I never really had that place that was like forever home, you know, that place to go back to, and also like. I just chased opportunity. You know, I, I didn't see myself retiring in Rapid City, South Dakota. Rapid City was unexpectedly awesome. Had no idea Mount Rushmore was there till I got there, uh, which is one of those funny things you learn about Mount Rushmore as a kid, but they never actually tell you where it is. And so I just chased opportunities. So I went to South Dakota for the opportunity. I went to Wisconsin for the opportunity. Ended up loving Milwaukee, uh, another sort of underrated town that, that people don't think about. What drew me to Bozeman, though, was this was the one where I got to choose. Like, I have my own firm. I'm working virtually for the most part with clients. I sort of go wherever I want and ended up coming out here. And and I fly fished and skied in the same weekend and just fell in love with the area and, you know, said, well, this is a place I would normally vacation. But like, what if I just lived there for a bit? And I don't know that I moved here with the intention that I would stay here. But that's sort of the story of a lot of Bozemanites. But, you know, in the end, life happens and my ex and I uh, have a kid together and she's here in Bozeman. And so he's here in Bozeman and we have 50-50 custody. And so, you know, said, 
well, you know, that nothing grounds you faster than than a, than a kid. And I'm I'm thrilled with that. He's given me a lot of probably stability that I wouldn't naturally create for myself because I am sort of like, well, let's go live in Thailand. Like that'll be fun. And so just it's funny how these things happen. And but, you know, ended up here and, and had no intention of building a business here. I, my vision was work 20 hours a week and ski a lot. But fortunately or unfortunately, I'm just too ADHD to do that and to sit still for that long. And and I sort of built that and then was bored. And so then I got involved in, in helping start XYPN. And and again, you know, and now we have almost just over 100 team members between XYPN and Advice Pay. And we have an office and like all these things that I never dreamed of. I didn't come here for that, but I was here and I wasn't leaving. And so that's sort of how we ended up headquartered in Bozeman, Montana. That's an awesome story. And that is how everybody just, they kind of go somewhere and they're like, let's just try it out. And then they stay there and they love it and they fall in love and then they build a kind of a company. That is the American dream right there. And I want to get into that XYPN journey, right? I mean, you go from starting your own firm, you build up your own firm and you start XYPN. Tell us about that transition. What led you to, to start up XYPN? I mean, it's had such an influence on the industry where we are today, but not a lot of people really remember what it was like when you were first starting it. So um, what was kind of the initiative you had? And and I want to dive into some of the entrepreneurial challenges you had doing that and go there, but let's start with getting it off the ground. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the story really starts back when I started my own firm, which was, you know, there weren't a lot of resources that were out there. I didn't know very many, I couldn't find any 25 year olds who had started their own firm. And and I had to figure out like what technology, you know, so I spent dozens and dozens of hours with every CRM and planning software and trying to integrate them and, and figure out the marketing strategy and compliance. Oh my goodness. Like, and I, you know, did my own ADV, copied a bunch of other people's ADVs, made my own, submitted it or so I thought. And, you know, it took a month before I realized I hadn't checked the right box in the, what's the acronym? I. PD system or whatever. And and so it didn't get submitted. So then I like delayed my launch because I had never logged into that platform before and it wasn't intuitive to me. And so I just had to sort of learn everything on my own, which was fun for me. I I did enjoy that. I I don't, uh, you know, regret that. Simultaneously, I did make a few phone calls to some people that I knew had started their own firm. And and one I give a lot of credit to uh, that I, I distinctly remember was Jude Boudreau with Upper Line Financial. He's now part of the planning center. Uh, he's based down in New Orleans. And he and a, a couple others that were people that I called that picked up the phone and, and helped. And they gave me some of their time. And even though they were just crazy busy and, and doing their own thing, they gave me the, their most precious resource, which was just so instrumental. And I credit the fact that I made it out of those that first year of owning a business with some of those folks that picked up the phone. And so I, I committed that I would be the guy who picked up the phone when someone called. If you fast forward about 18 months, end of 2013, I was in a, a study group with uh, a lot of really awesome financial planners who you would know, like Eric Robert, Sophia Barra, Mary Beth Storjahan, Ashley Murphy. And, and we were sort of the, this study group that was early, early days uh, when after we had all launched. And I looked back at my calendar and I had had over 100 phone calls in like the 14 months since I had committed to be the guy that picked up the phone. And so just saw the need. And, and everyone in my study group was also having these conversations. And we realized everyone's calling us asking the same things. How do you do compliance? How do you do marketing? What technology you select? And so, you know, everyone was really passionate about building their financial planning firm. And I was like, you know what? I think it'd be really cool to support advisors. You know, it's sort of a side project. Like it, this will be, be a thing on the side. So I emailed Michael Kitsis and and he and I had had some interactions in the past. And so emailed him and said, hey, I got this idea. What do you think? And he said, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm getting a lot of questions about starting a firm. 
And so fast forward five months, and that was April 2014, we launched XY Planning Network. And, and the vision was like, let's help a few dozen financial planners, probably mostly people who have either recently started or about to start their own firms that they really want to follow this model. They want to work with younger clients. They want to get paid for their advice, you know, and sort of a fee-for-service model. You know, I, I think our original projections had us like, what if we could get 200 members in like 10 years? Like, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, at the time, there, there were two other sort of advisor networks, uh, Alliance of Comprehensive Planners, ACP, and then uh, Garrett Planning Network. And I think Garrett had maybe 300 advisors, 275, 300 advisors, something like that. At the time, we were like, what if we could be that big one day? Wouldn't that be cool? And we just really didn't know the market we were stepping into, the opportunity we were stepping into. And so, you know, today, seven and a half years in, we have over 1,500 financial advisors now that, that are part of the, the platform. And so to your point, talk about the entrepreneurial journey, that makes it sound like a straight line. It certainly was not, <laughs> but that was sort of the, the origins and, and how we ultimately made the decision to, to get started. I mean, there's something there as well, because I think y'all saw an opportunity, but you didn't know the scale of the opportunity. And I think that, sure. and I think that there's something there and I maybe love your input on it of, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs get in because they're like, oh, this is such a big opportunity because it's a big market, but they don't know if it's actually necessarily a true needed opportunity. And there's something to that, right? You go and find yeah. the need as opposed to the kind of the, the C maybe. And, and that's just such an interesting way of looking at that, how y'all grew that from there. You just landed in this huge opportunity. Yeah, it's a great point that a lot of folks do. Yeah, it, the big opportunity or the big market. And then it's like, I'm going to serve consumers, right? And then you try to make the app or the thing and you try to find product market fit. We had the advantage of we sort of knew product market fit early on. And, and really our founding members helped us define what is it that they need. And fortunately, you know, I was able to ride Kitsis's coattails in the sense that people really respected him. They trusted him and they showed up because he was involved. And they said, this is what we need from you for us to, to stay part of this. And fortunately, we were able to build it fast enough that many of them stayed. You know, but one of the big focuses that we had from day one was we're going to be really focused on who we serve. We're going to be, a, we're going to have a really, you know, specific niche, uh, ideal client profile. And so we said, we're going to work with, you know, advisors that are fee only, that work with next gen clients that have a, you know, fee for service model. So they're not investment centric, that are able to work virtually, that have the CFP, because it's not required to join XYPN, but it is required to be on an advisor search. So we really narrowed the focus and, you know, the TAM, the total addressable market was pretty small where we got for, I don't know, I guess part of the journey has been both XYPN has become in a way its own self-fulfilling prophecy of like the advisors that joined that became successful and sort of showed that you can be successful doing that. And so they sort of are growing the marketplace that are out there because people are watching them. And then of course, Kitsis really sets the stage with his blog and research and speaking and all that to be able to say like, Hey, I, this is the future and where we're headed. And we've been able to capitalize on, on, you know, advisors, following that and, and really, you know, looking to that as the future. But uh, yeah, so it, there's many ways to start a business. I, I'm a big believer in, I actually learned this from Carl Richards, that there's sort of two modes or, or ways that researchers look at entrepreneurship. One is you're sort of walking along and you see an opportunity and you pick up the opportunity and you run with the opportunity. And it's a very sort of systematic way of looking at it. But it also, I think, takes away from many of the elements of sort of the second school of thought, which is that entrepreneurship is really an expression of creativity. It's really a, an expression of art. And if you ask me, Alan, are you an artist? I would say, no, I don't draw. I don't paint. I can't sing. No musical talent. And yet, if you really think about business, 
it, it is very much like painting from a blank canvas with not really sure where you're even going to end up. And I think it's one of the interesting things about running a business is that so many people will ask, well, why'd you do it this way? Why'd you do it this way? And they'll really, you know, sort of drill in every detail and tell you how wrong you are about all these things. But no one asks the 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 painter, like, why did you paint the sky pink? You know, that was a, <laughs> that was a stupid choice. You know, like no one says that. And, and because we really respect the, the creative process. And so entrepreneurism is a journey. It is a, a roller coaster, just like everyone says. But in the end, it's it, it's a it's the opportunity to create something from scratch that really is the thing you want to, to, to be part of, which is really fun. Yeah. And you know, it's always interesting because I have a lot of people ask me about it. Entrepreneurs or people that want to start a new, a new endeavor and be an entrepreneur. The uncertainty can be overwhelming because you don't know there, there is no playbook to that, mm-hmm. right? There is no playbook to building a successful business. I don't care what business book you read or what author tells you, like, here's the playbook, 10 steps. There is none. There is uncertainty every step of the way. If you're talking to an entrepreneur, which I'm sure you do because you pick up the phone, right? What do you tell them when they say, how did you handle all the uncertainty? And I'm sure you still have some uncertainty, even with 100 people, but it's even more so when it's just you and Michael or you and two other people. And you're like, what the heck am I doing? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll admit the stakes used to be lower, you know, when it was just my salary. That's one thing when it's, uh, you know, the, the, the team now it's different. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things I've actually learned, and maybe this is a superpower, but uh, one of the, the pieces of being ADHD is that we need a certain amount of stress for our brains to normalize because we don't get the same dopamine release that a healthy brain does. And so a little bit of stress, sometimes a lot of stress is actually really good for me. That's when I'm at my calmest. It's when I'm not stressed is when I get can get antsy and get kind of like, oh, there's like, maybe I'll go, you know, mess something up just, just for fun. I'm working on that. Meditation has been awesome. Sort of a new practice to try to try to learn how to uh, get through that, the pain of stress-free, which is kind of interesting to say. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to uncertainty, it's all about, I mean, one, it's about surrounding yourself with the people who who support you in those highs and lows. Like you can't do anything about the highs and the lows. It, it, and again, uh, to quote Jude Boudreau, uh, he, he said one time, entrepreneurship is the highest highs and the lowest lows all in the same day, right? You get fired by your biggest client the day you get quoted in the Wall Street Journal and get three, inter, you know, get three emails from prospects. It's amazing how that happens. And so that that journey is unavoidable. What you need, though, is that support system. So it's the people around you. It's your partner. It's a study group. It's a mentor that really are there to support you. Because, you know, one one thing I will say is that if you have a partner that is not pro you starting a business, then either the marriage or the business will fail. Guaranteed. It just Mm -hmm. does not work. And so you have to have that support system. You also have to be able to just work through stress and be able to get clarity in whatever way, you know, is for you. I, people know I'm, I'm, or I was a big CrossFitter with kid number three. I'm working out at home more these days, but you know, whether that's exercise and having that thing that helps clear your mind, whether that's meditation, whether that's, you know, going on walks, whatever it is that helps you sort of relieve stress to be sure you can, you can get through those decisions because in the end, like it's a lot of them, you know, and that that's early on. And then as you grow, it's just about hiring the right people and delegating and, and handing off the decisions so that you don't have the pressure of all the decisions. And, and, you know, really your focus should be just the few decisions that really move the business forward and get out of, you know, all the, the minutia that's important. It's got to get done, but there are other people better suited to make those decisions. 
Yeah. I think that on the meditation side, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of meditation, right? I think that I am a believer in meditation to help handle and calm stress because building a company is is the ultimate stress and it's fun. Everybody's like, you're doing so much and you have so much stress. And it's like, I, I don't know if I'm ADHD, but I have that same belief that like, if I don't have a little bit of stress, I start getting worrisome and I start worrying about a lot of other random stuff and anxiety. But so to you, I would ask, I mean, what's your longest streak of meditation? Because I'm trying to find someone to compete with on a longest streak, streak of meditation. Is this um, like day by day streak? Day by like day. How many days? Every day in a row. Because I use Headspace. Uh, this is a pr- free promotion for Headspace here. I don't know which one you use. I use Calm. So it's okay. one that we provide our team for free as part of a, a team member benefit. It's been about 45 days, something like that. Um, All right. I love that. Now, now here's the thing. I just hit 301 today, this morning. Wow. 301. Right. And I'm telling you right now, it's been life-changing. Yeah. Life-changing. 301. So we can push each other because now I need to, I can't let you catch up now to I know. me. Yeah. Well, exactly. Now I have to figure out how to get you to not do one. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just have to get you distracted for a whole day. No. <laughs> No, and meditation is one of those things. Like I've, I've historically said, like I'm, ju- I'm too, I'm too ADHD to to sit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm too ADD to get a massage. I, I struggle to like enjoy massages because they're just so boring for an hour, right? I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a runner because I can't just be in my own thoughts for for thirty minutes or an hour. And and I kind of got forced into some of this because we did. Uh, you and I were discussing pre-show that we were between houses right now. We sold a house and we're renovating a house. And so we went to Mexico for six weeks. We lived as a family and, and just checking out what it means to live in another country for, for over a month. And there was no gyms in our area. And so like, what am I going to do? It's wicked hot. And so I'm like, I guess I'll start running in the mornings before the sun comes up. And so I didn't really want to, but I, I uh, am I'm a Peloton user. So I've got a Peloton bike at home. Obviously couldn't take it with me to Mexico, but they have the app with all of these amazing, I mean, just the quality of their stuff is amazing, but they have these outdoor runs that are 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and they are so good. And so like that helped me sort of get in the space where I started running and, and I read uh, the miracle morning. And so I started testing, like, what does it mean to start meditating and, and that sort of thing. So I'm just been sort of testing what works for me, but it may not be for everyone, but I, I'm with you that there are definitely those moments where you think like, I'm really glad I, I meditate, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just so glad because like, I'm, if not, this would not have gone as well. <laughs> the calm that it brings. Now, I mean, now you're, you're leading me down a path to where, I mean, this podcast get out of control pretty quickly where we're talking about a lot of random nothing, but Peloton, who's your Peloton instructor of choice on the bike? And then I want to know on the run side. On the bike, definitely Alex. Uh, right. I grew up in Atlanta, so I'm a hip hop fan. So uh, he always like his Saturday uh, hip hop or club rides, club beggar rides are just unreal. So those are tons of fun. And then running, I, I sort of bounce around, but Adrian Williams is, is one. He's just a beast, but he's he does more on the tread than he does the actual outdoor classes. But outdoor, it'll be like Bex Gentry, who's I just unreal. I think she did like a 235 marathon. Oh my uh, it, gosh. And she missed the Olympic trials because I guess 230 is the cutoff or something. I mean, unreal. But the the quality is just so good of their production. So I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, you know, I know it's a lot of money, but 
you know, especially with with being an entrepreneur. I mean, the, the other thing I recently invested in that is probably I don't know if you've heard of the tonal. I'm a tonal user as well. Okay. It's amazing. I am, I'm a week this. I'm a week into my tonal usage. I'm very sore. But you know, and yes, if you go look at tonal, it's very expensive. I didn't I didn't have a mortgage payment for six months. I'm like, let's invest. Um, but yeah, it's it's kept me physically active, which like I'm again, I'm a huge CrossFitter. I love CrossFit, but I just wasn't able to get to the gym regularly enough. I stayed hurt and gained a lot of weight because of it, just because, you know, you just could not develop a habit. And so I've been able to sort of get into a habit of, of lifting and, and running or cycling and, and such. And I would say that has been instrumental for me and success in business has been like, my anchor point is exercise in the morning. If I exercise in the morning, everything else the rest of the day can be a win. If I don't exercise in the morning, it is not going to be a good day. And I've just learned that about myself. And that's my habit that I get up at 5 a.m. now, also not a morning person, but I'm going to get up, I get up at five. So I get the workout in before the kids get up and it just sets up the day. So huge fan. So did not, I have not met any other tonal users. So good tonal, to know. Tonal is great. It's game changing. You balance that with a little bit of Peloton and it gets you like this full great week. Cause I'm, I'm actually right there with you. I'm a 5 a.m. riser. I get my workout in before the kids get up, gets up and then it sets the tone of the day. But tonal it's just an amazing piece of technology. And it's interesting because the, the, the media, I think that they're going to get there. But what it just shows how good Peloton is. It because does. Yep. Their production quality is, you know, it's light years. I mean, Tonal's great, but it is just amazing production quality of what Peloton does on that side. And if you're a fan of Atlanta people, Matt Wilpers is a Atlanta boy as well. And the Power Zone mentality is a, oh, is a, man, just a those great, are so it's hard. A, it's a great workout. It is a great <laughs> workout that is painful to say the least. But, you know, you talk about where y'all are right now with XY, and then I want to get into the future of the industry and, and, and I'll let you get back to, to running the business. But XY has had an amazing success and people look at, at XY and says, gosh, it was just like a, like you're saying a straight line up, mm-hmm. but there had to have been tough periods in that journey to get to where y'all are. And, I'd love just because I think sometimes it's good for people to understand the path that y'all went on and the things that you had to overcome. If you can maybe highlight some of those tougher parts of that journey and those difficult points in the time. Yeah, absolutely. I um I, I can remember two really specific. I mean, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of tough days. You know, if you think about the the day we had to shut down for COVID, you know, shut down the office for COVID and just all all of these things that we've dealt with. But Early on, we had four team members. We had someone doing sales, someone doing marketing, someone doing member services, member support, and myself, I guess. I guess it was just the four of us. And, you know, we had been growing. We we were approaching, or maybe we had just crossed 100 members. So it would have been summer of 2015. Again, didn't really set out to, to do this. Like, we thought we we're going to have, you know, 20 or 30 for a while. And suddenly we have 100. And, and you know, I'd never run a business with, with team members before. I'd never managed people before. And so sort of in that journey, in that learning, and I started dating my now wife. She was a, a student at University of Illinois in, in her senior year. And, and we met at a conference. She was studying financial planning. So I was on the road trying to see her and I was trying to go to conferences because I did all, you know, we had one person doing sales, but I went to, you know, a bunch of events and I finally just broke and I ended up applying for a job. I, I applied for to, to be the director of financial planning at a university. And fortunately, they never called me back, uh, never even emailed <laughs> me to acknowledge that I had applied. But that sparked a conversation with Michael. And he said, like, what does it like, do you really want to be out? Do you want to be done? Like, wh- what? where's your head at? And, and he really pushed me on that. 
And what it came down to was I was just so burdened and overwhelmed with the operations of running the business, of the spreadsheets and the financials and the data metrics and being sure like, hey, I said this needed to get done, but like the follow-up process and just all the things of, of operating a business. And, and again, there were only four people, like it wasn't that big. But at the time, it felt overwhelming. And so we made the decision then that we ended up hiring a, a COO, a chief operating officer to run the business. And you don't normally hire that position that early. But my quality of life skyrocketed when, when that position started. And, you know, my, my wife now, you know, now wife remembers that when, when he really got started and ramped up and it was like, wow, like this is totally different. Like finally, I can I cannot work on a Sunday or only work for a couple of hours and just all the things that came with that. And so I, I encourage people to really be willing to identify your strengths and be willing to identify your weaknesses. And, and it's, you know, put your ego aside and be willing to say like, I'm not good at keeping the trains running on time. It's just not my gift. And, and, you know, for, for him, he would say like, he's not a visionary CEO. Like he doesn't want to be, you know, setting, looking at industry trends and trying to motivate the team around like the future and all that. And so those are the types of things that happen in, in your journey. You know, I, I remember another time we, we had a conference. Uh, it was our second conference. We were about two and a half years into the business. We had a lot of folks who were feeling like they were outgrowing what we were offering. And it was this really core membership group that were really influential with the network. And, and we were at the conference and it was this like really low feeling, the entire event of people saying like, of course, they, they never said like, I'm leaving. They said like, everybody else is leaving. Like you're gonna lose a bunch of members if you don't figure this out. And we just sort of started running around like chicken little, like, oh my gosh, the sky's falling. What are we going to do? And, and those are the moments where you're just like, we've worked so hard to do this thing. Why don't people appreciate it? Like, you know, someone on one breath will say, well, I, I never would have started a firm if it hadn't been for X, Y, but three years later, like, I think I'm going to leave because I don't, I'm not getting value anymore. And mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to not get offended by that, or it was at the time. And, and just learning how to just refocus and say, okay, is there really a problem here? Right. And, and come to find out there really wasn't like, we needed to grow our services and all of that. But like, maybe it was just people were looking for more, but we, we just couldn't provide more because they weren't paying more. And so, uh, you know, I think about those types of things and, and the struggles that, that we had, but, you know, in the end it is being successful in business is not about being right more often than you're wrong, right? Every choice is, it has a continuum of, of, of impact and, you know, just being really intentional about building the business that you really want to build, that that's the, the job you want to show up to every day uh, is just so critical and, and something I think that gets really overlooked as we, we want to like, oh, we'll grow so we can make more money or whatever. And it's like, well, what do you really want to build and, and just be very intentional? Yeah. That's powerful, man. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that there's a lot to be taken away from that. And I can, I can relate to a lot of those points. And, you know, it, it's hard to take on and understand what it is that you're good at and be okay giving up some of the other stuff, right? Because it's time that it goes into making that transition, but it's worth it in the end, for sure. For sure. Um, I want to transition real quick over to the industry, right? With XY, y'all have always been focused and you specifically on financial planning. And it was, Pre XY coming in, even I mean, it was starting out a little bit, but it was all just investment management. We were mm -hmm. investment managers. We chose investments and built portfolios and everything of that nature. And y'all, I feel we're on the forefront of planning mentality within wealth management. And that's where it's coming, right? It's starting to catch up to where y'all were. Yeah. What's next in your mind, right? As you sit there from the seat, you have tons of members, 1,500 members. You see what's going on in the industry, your thought leader there. 
what's next for the financial planning journey or what's next in the whole journey for wealth managers? Yeah, I totally agree with you that financial planning, like now the industry is starting to to look at it and is starting to catch up. But in the end, like the the percentage of financial advisors of the 285,000 advisors that are doing real financial planning is still probably in the single digits as a whole. And so I think the next decade or two is just going to be this segment of the marketplace is just going to continue to grow. And you're going to see more and more people moving into doing financial planning, doing what I call real financial planning. And I think you're just going to see that evolution. You know, I, I think that the, the advantage when you, you start talking about fee for service, right? If you say you have commissions, you have AUM, and then in between you have fee for service. So that's hourly, uh, it's monthly subscriptions, it's project planning or pro- project fees, whatever inside of that. In the end, it allows you to serve a segment or really to serve like a, a huge portion of Americans that AUM did not allow, right? AUM, if you have to have half a million or more in investable assets, that's three to 4% of Americans that, that could even hire an AUM-based advisor. Only a third of Americans are delegators. So you've really limited yourself to one to 2% of the population, which is fine. You can build a very successful business there. But what about the other 98%? And so even if we look at median household income, the, the 50th percentile and up, there's 48% of Americans that aren't being served by the industry today. And so the opportunity is massive. I, I never had to compete with other advisors for clients. And these were great clients, but it did require a little bit different of a service model, uh, a different focus. And so I, I think that what you're going to see is more and more advisors getting into fee-for-service. They're going to they're going to see that they can actually build a scalable, sustainable business. I think you're going to continue to see firms focusing. Obviously, I'm a huge proponent of having a, uh, having a niche market. There's riches in the niches, as we like to say. Um, and and from our benchmarking survey, a study that we do with members, niche firms. They make more money, they make more money per client, they spend less time per client, and they're providing more value to those clients because they're experts in that world. And so I think what you're going to continue to see is sort of upper end consolidation. I think some of the big, big, big firms out there, the Edelman and Carson and and Mariner and all those are going to be mega firms. Suddenly, $100 under management is just going to be like, oh, only $100? I I think you're going to see that. But I think you're also going to see the rise of of the solo and boutique firms that have a really specific niche focus because I don't think those big, big firms can compete with a solo or a boutique for a very specific target market. And I think you're going to see a lot more specialization, a lot more expertise there, which is exciting because I, I think... You know, the, the idea that, you know, somehow the big firms will put all the little firms out of business is ridiculous. The same way, you know, Bud Light hasn't put any craft brewers out of business, right? There's still, there's plenty of room for both. And I think you're going to see more and more craft breweries popping up in financial services with unique taste, unique flavors, unique experiences, whatever that is. So that that's sort of my overall prediction. Does that cause a, a gap in the middle for like the the millionaire next door potential is that cause a gap because like you know the 100 billion dollar 200 billion dollar firm then you're just basically creating wirehouses again right sure. that's ultimately what you're doing and then you've got the niche people that are maybe focused on just younger generation or the blue collar people only or the white collar whatever it may be does it cause an issue in the middle you think or do the niche fill that and there is no gap right there is no the donut hole as they say in some of the, some of the other ways yeah, I don't I don't see a gap from a client perspective. I think in the end your niche could be millionaire next door and that yeah. that that is the target that that's the person you want to talk to because 
you appreciate the fact that they have a lot of money and they don't want to be flashy with it. They don't want to outspend their neighbor, but they have, you know, they, they want to, to give more and you're an expert in that area. So I, I don't think from a client perspective, I think there's going to be small firms, you know, that, and, and niche firms and big firms that serve them. What I do see the donut hole that happens is, is in running the business itself. And so, you know, Michael has some has some stuff on his blog. I think he calls it the dangerous middle. He used to call it the deadly middle, but um, he had to tone it down. And that is when you go from, let's just say, uh, I don't know the exact numbers. Let's say a few million in revenue. Let's say 10 million in revenue as a business. Like you sort of hit this point and then you're trying to go to 100 million revenue or from 1 million to 10 million. And if you read the book Scaling Up, they, they always have these like, I can't remember what they call it, basically pit of despair from like one peak to another and just all the transition that happens. And so what I think you're going to see is once you get scale and yeah, you have 10 billion under management, the next 10 billion is a lot easier than the first 10. And that gets easier, but those firms are going to make it very difficult to build the next $10 billion firm. I don't think it's impossible, but it's going to get harder. And so I do think for those who truly want to build an enterprise business, they envision having 1,000 or or 2,000 employees, building that from scratch is going to be harder because while you can still have a niche or sort of sub niches throughout the firm, the, the overall brand, you probably can't apply to a single niche uh, just because there may not be enough to support that. And so I, I think that it's more about the building the business itself. I think clients will be taken care of. I think every client will be able to find an advisor that's right for them. It's going to be the the type of business you're trying to build will get harder if you're going enterprise. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And then the other thing that I, you know, what you're talking about is that that large swath of people that aren't working with a financial advisor, right? Because ultimately, I'm a believer that the human financial advisor is never going away. I've written books about it. I talk about it all the time. And I think that's really important to help navigate the financial planning aspect of it. But what is it that we need to do to be able to serve more of those people? I mean, we don't have enough, even though we have 258,000 advisors. Yum. Is that enough? Or do we need to go get more and we need to invest in the future wealth manager like y'all do at you know XY? And, or, or do we have enough? What do we need to do to be able to access and, and give uh, access to those people? No, I mean, I, I believe that in the end, advisors will only ever be able to serve 100, 125, maybe 150 clients at the top end. There are some platforms out there saying, oh, we can serve 300 or 350. They're sort of serving up that message to investors that are investing in their business. But I just don't see it. I think in the end, technology is going to allow us to be more efficient and be able to drive more value for our clients. But you can just only have so many client relationships and do real financial planning. And to that end, no, we have a massive shortage of financial advisors. There are not nearly enough advisors in our space. And so we do need more people getting into the industry because, you know, depending on what number you look at, like, and again, even that 285,000, that includes everyone. Uh, if you look at even whatever it is, 80 or 90,000 CFPs, if they can each have a hundred clients, like, great, we have, we've served a million Americans. There's 350 million Americans and growing. And so how are we going to, to increase that? So I, I think, yeah, we, it's going to require major investment. The university system is going to be responsible that, you know, trying to get through the uh, certificate programs and, and all of that. There's a lot that we can talk about there, but I do think we need 
way more financial advisors. It's why you. It's why fee compression is a myth. Is because there's not enough supply of advisors to even allow for fee compression. Because in the end, like there's just enough clients out there that that you don't have to worry about it. And so that's why we're not seeing fees move. It's why you know I rarely meet advisors that aren't growing. I mean, I meet advisors that aren't growing as fast as they want to, but I rarely meet them. Was like, yeah, it shrunk ten percent this year. Uh, not a lot of businesses can say that. You know, at, at a conference where everyone is growing which is great for us. It's a great business to be in. I think this is a, an amazing profession that you can make a lot of money, but you can help a lot of people. I truly view this as a, a helping profession. You can have a lot of flexibility for yourself and your family, but we desperately need more talent. And you know, unfortunately, the, the biggest hirers of financial advisors also have like a 90% failure rate. And, and we lose a lot of those kids, those uh, you know, new grads out of the industry, which is a, which is a problem. So it, it's systemic, but it's something we're going to have to address if we're ever going to really be a profession because you can't only serve the top 1% of Americans and call yourself a profession. Yeah. Yeah. That's for a whole nother podcast that we can talk about how to solve that because I'd love to solve that for the betterment of the industry and for the betterment of the just the good, the common good, right? If we can figure out how to invest in more diversity and invest in younger generations and and help to build opportunity in this space even more, which I think y'all are doing really well, but we need more of that across the board. So I'm going to wrap it up with this question. When you hang it up for your career, what do you hope people say about Alan Moore? God, you know, the truth is like, I hope people don't talk about me. I don't like, I, I, <laughs> I so much prefer to be like behind the scenes. Um, but I, I hope what people, I guess the two things that come to mind, one is I hope people can remember that XYPN was a business that, that both made money and also did good. That, that we didn't have to sacrifice one for the other. And I just hope that in the end, when, when it's all said and done, like we just, we, we get to know that we made some small positive dent in the universe. Cause I think that's why we all, I think that's what we all strive for. And that's why our mission, you know, our, our target is in seven, you know, seven and a half years, we want to have 5,000 members. And the reason we want 5,000 members is because we, we see that, you know, so we have this hundred X impact on the world where for every advisor we help support, they help a hundred clients. And so, you know, I think about, you know, wouldn't it be cool if 500,000 consumers get access to financial planning that maybe wouldn't have had access before, or without XYPN supporting those advisors. And then we'll reset the target and it'll become 10,000 advisors, whatever it is. But I just hope I get to look back and just know that that we made some small dent. Yeah, I love that. Well, Alan, I'm really appreciative for you spending time with us. I know how, as you mentioned, precious time is and picking up the phone for us here on Bridging the Gap. And all of our listeners probably already follow you and know how to get in touch with you. But for those silly ones that may not be, how can they stay in touch and continue to follow you on your journey and, and hear your your voice? Absolutely. I mean, you can get on, uh, if you're, if you're not on Twitter, get there. I don't know why financial advisors hang out on Twitter. So uh, you'll have to look up our Alan Moore because Alan Moore is the famous graphic novelist. He always wins at SEO um, <laughs> or on LinkedIn. So uh, you can find me on social media. All right. Awesome. Alan Moore, thanks so much for what you do for the industry and for spending time here with us on Bridging the Gap. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 